Our reading this morning is from the book of Psalms, chapter 55, verses 12 through 23. If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were rising against me, I could hide. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship at the house of God, as we walked among, about among the worshipers. Let death take my enemies by surprise. Let them go down alive to the realm of the dead, for evil finds lodging among them. As for me, I call to God, and the Lord saves me. Evening, morning, and noon I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. He rescues me unharmed from the battles waged against me, even though many oppose me. God, who is enthroned from of old, who does not change, he will hear them and humble them because they have no fear of God. My companion attacks his friends. He violates his covenant. His talk is smooth as butter, yet war is in his heart. His words are more soothing than oil, yet they are drawn swords. Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous be shaken. But you, God, will bring down the wicked into their pit of decay. The bloodthirsty and deceitful will not live out half their days. But as for me, I trust in you. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me again? Father, we are grateful for your word and the promises that everything withers and the things of this world pass away. Your word, your commitment to your people will stand firm. We pray that as we open your word and learn from it this morning, our confidence in it and in the God that stands behind it and guarantees it will grow. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I'm sure we've all had nights before where we lay there and we just long for the morning. You just can't wait for light to come streaming in through the windows because the night has been so horrible, you just want to get to morning. I remember one of those nights. It wasn't in my bed. It was in a sleeping bag. It was winter camping as a part of a class in upstate New York. There was no campground, no tent, just sleeping bag, woods, and me. It was miserable. Actually, that part wasn't the really bad part. The really bad part was that I had a pound of hamburger, and that was supposed to be dinner. You had to figure out how to cook with no implements of cooking a pound of hamburger. I tried meat on a stick, just crushed it around a stick, and my dinner was half cooked and half raw, and did something awful to my insides. It would have been a horrible night had I had facilities, but I didn't. I had frozen ground and snow and temperatures hovering in the mid-teens. And I just laid there longing for the morning, waiting for the first crack of dawn so I could go back and drop this stupid class. You've all had nights like that, right? Maybe it wasn't in the wilderness of western New York in a sleeping bag. Maybe it was beside a sick kid 
or just riddled with anxiety and you just couldn't sleep? What about spiritual nights like that? What some writers have referred to as dark nights of the soul, where the circumstances of life just push in beyond the externals and they go they go deep and discouragement settles in and despair starts to wrap its tentacles around your heart and soul you've been there too haven't you i have been that's one of the things i i love about the psalms is so many of the psalms speak to that the psalm writer just opens himself up and he's honest about his his struggle and the the darkness that he finds himself in the next four weeks, we're doing a kind of a mini-series that we're calling Songs in the Night. As we focus on, on some of these psalms and, and their honesty, as the psalmist wrestles through these dark nights of the soul, and they're so instructive, because again, I can relate to them. And as I'm in the midst of those dark nights, I can look to these psalms and see how the psalmist persevered, where the psalmist turned to to find comfort in peace. This week we're looking at, at Psalm 55. It's a psalm of, of David, and it's clear that the psalmist is in deep despair. He's in distress. In, in verse 4 he says, My heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen on me. Fear and trembling have beset me. Horror has overwhelmed me. This is no trifling matter. Uh, this is deep distress, deep despair. What's brought him to this place of discouragement? Well, there's enemies. Uh, this is King David. There's always enemies, right? There's enemies. It doesn't appear as in this psalm as though those enemies are foreign armies. That's the case in, in other psalms. The enemies here are, are more internal. And they're waging war more with words than weapons. It's slander. It's threats. It's accusations. So there's enemies. And that's eating at David. There's also wickedness in the city. He says, I, I walk through the city and I see wickedness. I see immorality. I see violence and strife. I see people cheating one another and lying, and, and my heart is sick over it. So there's enemies, and there's wickedness, and they're weighing upon David. But the true, the true source of his discouragement is the betrayal of a close friend. It's as though David says, I can handle all that stuff. I'm used to it. I'm king. I know I have enemies. If foes are attacking me, I know how to deal with that. But this is worse. A close friend has betrayed me. Someone who I, I walked with in, in a spiritual way. We went to worship together. We walked among the people of God. We took counsel together. Has betrayed me. Verses 20 and 21, he says, we were in covenant and he broke it. 
His words to my face were smooth as butter. But behind my back, they were like swords drawn, ready to stab me in the back. This whole psalm reminds me of Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar. And that final scene where Caesar is betrayed and assassinated. And all the wounds that do him in, it's the wound of Brutus, his close friend, that hurts the most. And so he dies with those words on his lip, et tu, Brute, and you also, Brutus? That's the death wound right there, the wound of his close friend. Commentators have looked through David's life and they've tried to assign this psalm, Psalm 55, to some episode and what might be happening. And the best guess is that this was written maybe around the time or reflecting on the time when Absalom, his son, tried to usurp the throne. And one of David's very close advisors, Ahithophel, sided with Absalom over against David. Kind of fits the bill. I mean, that's betrayal in a very deep sense, right? Your son and your close advisor side against you and try to take your throne. But that's the best guess. This psalm is vague enough that you can't assign it to a specific period in David's life. And I like that because it helps me relate to it all the more. Sometimes when I read the psalms and David is bemoaning enemies at the gate. I have a tough time relating to that. I have to imagine what it would be like to have foreign armies coming and I'm staring over the city walls at them and how I would have to then rely on God in that situation. I have to imagine that with this kind of distress, with this kind of pain, I don't necessarily have to imagine it. I just have to remember it. I have felt the sting of betrayal before. My guess is you have too. I think everyone remembers their first car, you know, the first vehicle they ever purchased, sometimes with fondness, sometimes not. Uh, the first car I ever purchased, I purchased for $500. It was a 1979 Chevy van. It was ugly as sin, rusted out. The exhaust system had more Coke can and chicken wire than anything else. It was beastly loud. You had to scream at the person sitting next to you to be heard if you were driving 30 miles an hour. My dad refused to ride in it because you smelled like exhaust when you got out. The thing I did love about it, the only two seats in the van that were bolted down were the two front seats. So if I wanted to take friends anywhere, yeah, I had some, um, we had to put lawn chairs in the back. Which was great, because if they got on your nerves a little bit, you just took a turn hard, and there was just this massive pile of people in the back. It was fantastic. It was before we cared about safety. Uh, I have good memories in that van. One of the things that sticks out, though, is the note that my friend Kurt left in the van. Uh, Kurt was the, the guy who sold me the van. He was my youth group leader. Yeah. He taught me how to work on it with Coke cans and chicken wire and real tools too. He taught me how to shoot guns, 
We hung out together. We did a lot of stuff together. This note came at a time in the life of my dad's church that was upside down. It was going through a lot. There was a church split brewing. And the note said, Dan, I'm leaving the church. Good luck. To me, as my family was undergoing this intense scrutiny, and I would, at the age of 17, would have said, attack. We were being attacked. This was a deep wound. This close friend was now siding with, again, as the 17-year-old sees it, my enemies. It felt like a betrayal, a deep one. I can relate to this. I'm sure you've suffered maybe even more grievous betrayals than that. Looking back, it's almost a trivial betrayal, but it still felt, well, it still hurt. Maybe your betrayal is a a close friend who's slandering you, gossiping behind your back, trashing your reputation. And maybe it's a spouse who took vows with you and is trampling those vows as though they meant nothing. Maybe it's a child that you've reared and the the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. You've loved them, you've cared about them, and they've turned their back on, on you and on your faith, and it feels like a a betrayal. We can relate to this. So I think this psalm is is all the more instructive because of that, because we can learn from how David copes with this pain and where he finds comfort. He finds it in in three places. First, he, he finds it in God's steady character. God's unchanging character. Look again at at verse 19. Verse 19 comes in the midst of of David's complaint about his enemy and his friends who's turned to enemies. And it comes in the midst of these petitions that God would do something about it. David says, God, who is enthroned from of old, who does not change. It's this theological affirmation that's kind of dropped in the middle of a prayer. And I think it's incredibly important. It's as though David is reminding himself and us that though everything else is changing, God doesn't. Now, if you looked at your Bible and you have a different translation than mine, you might be saying, well, wait a minute. That's not what my translation says. Maybe yours says something like, God will look at them that don't change. It's one of these translational ambiguities. It's clear from the the Hebrew text that something is unchanging. But some versions assign that to God. God is the one who is unchanging in his character. Other translations assign it to the enemies who are unchanging, in other words, unrepentant in their sin. It's one of those that the the grammar doesn't really help you that much. The new NIV, which I read from and was read this morning, assigns it to God. God is unchanging. The older NIV assigns it to the enemies. Grammar doesn't help you, but I think the context does. I think in the context, David is contrasting his friends who seemed close who seemed faithful and that they flopped they changed 
They proved unfaithful. And he's saying, God, you're where you've always been. You're enthroned forever. That hasn't changed. You don't change. That's such a biblical affirmation. You see it in the book of James. James is reflecting in James chapter 1, verse 17, on all the things that we have. God gives us all these good gifts, and he says, And in God, there is not a shadow of turning. There's not a hint of change. God, through the prophet Malachi, states it even more bluntly. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. Now, some have taken that kind of language to an extreme. And they've painted a picture of God as inactive, detached, dispassionate, even unconcerned about the things of this world. That's unbiblical. It's an extreme. Others have reacted to that and say, no, God is constantly changing. He's learning. He's growing. He's changing all the time. That is also an unbiblical extreme. Between those two is the biblical affirmation that God is constant. He's steady in who he is. He doesn't go searching for himself. He doesn't have to to reinvent himself. He doesn't scrap plan A and go to plan B on a whim. He doesn't go searching for a better people. God is faithful to his promises, to his plan. And most importantly, he's faithful to who he is as holy, loving God. He is who he is always and unchanging. And that is such a fantastic comfort. When people around us prove unfaithful and change their opinion of us. When the world seems to be changing at breakneck speed. It doesn't feel like you can even keep up with all the changes. Things that we thought we knew and we thought we knew for a thousand years were true all of a sudden get turned on their heads and you're wondering, in all this change, in this sea of tumult, where's my anchor? Where's my rock? It's God. It's God who remains constant and unchanging in his nature. That's why the psalmist prays over, I think it's more than 30 times in the psalms, God, my rock, my fortress, my refuge. Trust in the Lord at all times. Pour out your hearts to him, it says in Psalm 72. For God is your rock, your refuge. Like a kid who has a thunderstorm is just bashing the house, looks to dad and sees dad calm and steady. The thunder's rattling the windows. The wind's swaying the house. And yet dad's still just being dad. He's not panicking. And the kid can take comfort and find peace and feel secure in that. How much more true of our God when life is beating us When society is upside down and we're just being tossed to and fro, we look to God who is our rock and we find comfort. David also found comfort in God's sustaining power. Verse 22, he says, cast your cares upon the Lord and he will sustain you. It's interesting to see the progression in the psalm. Early in the psalm, David says, this is really bad. 
so bad I wish I had the wings of a dove so I could carry myself away into the wilderness and no one would bother me. I want escape. I want out. Then as he moves through the psalm, it's, Lord, in the midst of this, save me, redeem me. And then by the end of the psalm, it's, Lord, sustain me. I'm not now looking for escape. I want you to sustain me, to preserve me in the midst of this situation. In the midst of this pain and this anxiety, sustain me. I want to learn to pray that way. Far too often I say, God, this is hard. Fix it. God, this is hard. Get me out of this. I want to learn to say, God, this is hard. Sustain me in this. I'm not asking you to take me out of it because I know that in the midst of these dark nights of the soul, in the midst of the wilderness, in the midst of suffering and pain and hurt, you teach. You do something in these times that you don't do on the mountaintops, that you don't do when everything's rosy. When I'm reflecting spiritual maturity, and that's not always, I want more than anything for God to change me, to transform me, to shape me more into the image of Christ. And I know that it's in these difficult times that that work is really, truly happening. So I want to learn to pray this way. Sustain me through this. John of the Cross, spiritual writer 400 years ago, said no soul will ever grow deep in the spiritual life unless God works in that soul by means of the dark night. I believe that. So I don't want God to take me out of it. I want God to keep working through it and sustaining me. That was David's hope. We can rely on those promises that God will not give us more temptation than we can bear. Not more temptation to discouragement or despair or to giving up. He won't give us more of those temptations that we can bear. And as we are going through it, we can also rely on those promises that everything we endure, God is working for our eternal good. God has never promised to remove us from all struggle, to remove us from difficulty. He's promised to sustain us in it. David's laying hold of that promise and he finds comfort in it. This is not too much for you to sustain me through. So I cast my cares upon you and I ask you, sustain me. He finds promise and hope and comfort there. Third, he finds comfort in God's final vindication. He says, God, I know you're going to bring down the wicked into pits of decay. He's looking ahead. It's not happening right now. It might not happen in the near future. But God, you're going to balance the scales. You'll reward the righteous. They won't be shaken. You'll bring down the wicked into pits of decay. There's a final leveling. A final reckoning. David knew that. And he placed his hope in it. And he found comfort in it. Christianity is at its core an eschatological 
faith. That's a word we use eschatological to mean to refer to final things. We've kind of shrunk the word a little bit to only refer to end time kind of things like the book of Revelation and apocalyptic stuff. I think it's a bigger word than that. It should embrace our ultimate Christian hope, which lies in the future, in Christ's return, in, in the eternal state, in everything being put to right. So Christianity is at its core, not just at the end, at its core, eschatological. Because at its core, it's looking forward to the resurrection Jürgen Moltmann, the German theologian, said eschatology means the doctrine of the Christian hope from first to last and not merely in the epilogue. From first to last and not merely in the epilogue, Christianity is eschatological. It is hope, forward-looking, forward-moving, and therefore also revolutionizing and transforming the present. Yet you see that in David. He's looking forward to his final vindication and it transforms who he is in the present. He now has strength to endure because he's taking comfort in the future. When all the wrongs will be set right. Uh, when hurts will be healed. When everything that's been lost is restored. Now, as you read this song, there's kind of an elephant in the room, in a way. Some of the prayers, some of the petitions that David makes, make us feel uncomfortable. Lord, confuse the wicked. Bring them down into the pit of decay. And let death overtake them. I pray that they won't even see half their days. Those prayers sound vindictive, don't they? I don't think they are. I don't think they are. I think they're simply David asking God to do what God promised he would do. Bring about justice. Restore. Judge. I don't pray prayers exactly like that when I pray. But I do pray prayers that are very similar to that when I pray. What do I mean? I don't pray prayers that are exactly like that because I'm not David, right? David was unique. He stood in a unique place in redemptive history. He was God's appointed, God's anointed king over Israel. I'm not. He could draw a one-to-one -one correlation between his enemies and people who are threatening his kingdom and God's enemies. I can't. My enemies are sometimes my enemies because of my pettiness or my jealousy or my insecurities. That's not what we're seeing here. This isn't personal vindication, personal revenge. This is David saying, these are my enemies. God, they're your enemies. I don't feel comfortable making those statements because I know my own pride. I know the state of my own heart. 
But I do pray prayers similar to that. I pray all the time, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Set things right. I pray daily, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when I pray that, in essence what I'm praying is, Lord, all those who don't hallow your name, who don't revere it, deal with them. Lord, everything that sets itself up in opposition to your kingdom, deal with it. Father, everything that opposes your will, deal with it. I leave it in your hands. I'm not the one to deal with it. You do it. Your will be done. Luther points out that those prayers are really similar to the kind of prayers we're seeing here in the Psalms. And he says it way better than I ever could. He always does. He says, when we pray, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. What we're doing is we're putting all opposition to this in one pile. And we're saying, curses, maledictions, and disgrace upon every other name and every other kingdom. May they be ruined and torn apart, and may all their schemes and wisdom and plans run aground. You didn't know that's what you were praying when you prayed the Lord's Prayer, did you? But when you get behind the words, that sentiment's biblical. God, we love you. We love your kingdom. We hollow your name. We want you to be glorified. So do it. In the meantime, while I wait for God to balance the scales of justice, to restore what's been lost, to vindicate the righteous, I take comfort in God's power to sustain me, to sustain me through hurt, to work in me through hurt, even betrayal. And I rest in God's unchanging character. That sounds like a great place to end the sermon. But there's one more thing you got to see in this psalm. There's a real bitter irony here. David, the victim of betrayal. David opening his heart and saying, my good friend has betrayed me. David's also played the villain before. David the betrayed has also been David the betrayer. His good friend Uriah the Hittite, a loyal, faithful servant, one of his mighty men of valor. David betrayed him in a way that I can barely imagine. Took his wife, took her as his own, and had him murdered. You know, if you're like me, when you read this psalm, you immediately insert yourself into the role of the victim. The one who's been betrayed. We usually do that. We're the victim. We're the hero. Sometimes, though, we're the villain. We're not the good Samaritan. We're the robber. We're not the betrayed. We're the betrayer. You say, well, Dan, I have never betrayed. I keep my vows to my wife. I'm a person of my word. I'm a good friend. Yeah, maybe. 
But if you're like me, and you are, you've betrayed the friend that sticks closer than a brother. You've betrayed your king. You've broken covenant. You've spoken smooth, praising words and proven your duplicity with your life and your attitude. We are all, every single one of us, Edmonds in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And we all, every single one of us, need the redemptive work of the stone table. We are all Judases or would-be Judases who need the saving work of the cross. Today, when we come to this table, we remember what Christ instituted on the night he was betrayed. That points to one specific act of betrayal by Judas. But before that, there was millions upon millions of acts of betrayal, of treason, of sin, that made the cross necessary. Allow that. And allow the depth of God's love to wash over you. You know the pain of betrayal personally. Multiply that 10,000 times. God knows the depth of our betrayal. And yet, and yet, while we were still sinners, betrayers, traitors, Judases and Edmonds, he demonstrated his love for us. By dying on the cross. To open the way of reconciliation. To make peace. We all need to wear that mantle of traitor, betrayer, unfaithful friend. And we all, we all can take grace. Receive it. Rely on it. And be welcomed into God's family because of it. Maybe today, for the very first time, you understand the depth of your sin as betrayal. Amen. You're almost there. Having understood that, allow the love of God, allow His forgiveness to penetrate your heart. Embrace it and submit to it. Welcome it, yield to it, and say, I know, I understand, I'm a sinner. And Christ died for me. He opened the way. I'll walk in that way through faith. What a wonderful day that would be for me, especially for you. The doors to eternity and that God's kingdom would open. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the diagnosis that we receive and it's painful to hear. We want to think we're loyal. But your word and your spirit tells us otherwise. And yet you offer healing and restoration. You promise to make peace through the sacrifice of your own son 
What love is this? Father, we pray that we would embrace it and be changed by it even this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.